This is a full The Now Media production. Hello and a big welcome back to Grundy's Grumbles. Episode 2 is called Piccadilly Days and that's with a Z. My name is Tony Grundy and after the first podcast last week I must really thank you for all your feedback, constructive ideas and stories. Keep those coming. Keep sending those stories to me and the contacts of how to get hold of me will be the end of this podcast. Now, in episode one, I talked about some of the difficulties of having your dad on TV on a daily programme when you're making your way at primary school and secondary school, which led me to get involved in fights sticking up for my dad, who people were insulting. Nice, eh? It wasn't all bad, though. I want to tell you about two stories, both involving football, that only could happen because dad was on TV. So the good side. In the first episode, I actually told you that I became very early in my life a Manchester United supporter. When you live in Manchester, you're either City or United. I was definitely United. Now in 1957, when I guess I was nine, I watched the Busby Babes on a black and white TV. They lost to Aston Villa in a cup final. Then came the devastating Munich air crash for the Manchester United Busby Babes, when so many of that talented young team died and perished. I remember, re- read, I remember reading the MEN headlines. I cried with many people across the world at that time. I went on crying. Amazingly, that same season, the team got to another cup final, this time against Bolton Wanderers, against all the odds. And they lost that one as well. But I was a supporter for life from that point. Then, the next season, the 58-59 season, Dad invited his dad, my granddad, to go to Old Trafford with me for the very first time, at least for me it was. Dad was doing a radio report on the match and it was a match against Newcastle United. I stood on the Stretford End Terrace, on the worst, there were terraces then, with my lovely granddad. I could not believe the excitement and brilliant atmosphere. United played superbly, bearing in mind I'd never seen them play live before. They were 4-1 up at half-time. Grandad said to me at the interval, so what do you think of this old champion? He called all the kids old champion. I could hardly find a word to say. I was so full of excitement. Full-time though, amazingly, it was United 4, Newcastle 4 when the full-time whistle went. I was stunned by the whole thing. United always conceded goals, but they usually scored more than they conceded at that time. At the end of the game, Dad had actually said, come to this particular turnstile and I will meet you there, take you into the ground ahead of me doing my radio interview and report. As we walked in these big concreted areas, a big man, a very tall man, was walking towards us. The man said, hello, Bill, how are you? In a very Scottish voice. 
I was gobsmacked because I realised straight away it was Matt Busby, absolute hero and legend. Dad said to Matt, meet my dad and my eldest son, Anthony. It's his first match at Old Trafford. With which Matt put his arm around me and said, follow me, son. He took me, would you believe it, to the Manchester United dressing room. All the team were getting changed there. And one by one, he introduced me and I shook hands with every player who also signed the programmes I had for the game. Unbloody believable. There they all were, Bill Fawkes, Harry Gregg, Bobby Charlton, all survivors from the Munich air crash. When I got home, Mum said, did you have a nice day, as she always used to? I was still absolutely speechless. So when people say to me, how come you're a Manchester United fan, sometimes in quite a critical term? Well, I think I've got a decent answer. Second football story, because I told you there were two. Dad used to play in a lot of charity games, a lot of charity football matches on the back of his TV fame. From when I was probably 16 onwards, I would always take my boots with me. I would go with him because quite simply, somebody in quotes famous wouldn't turn up at all, or at half time they'd be so knackered they'd just clear off. So I usually got a game. Well, one night, typical of all of this, we were playing on Oldham's ground at Boundary Park. I was on from the start. Things went, quite normally really. I could defend so I played at the back because nobody could defend in charity games and I was a reasonable player. I was about 19 I think. So I was always needed. We came in at half time and dad who was let's quote it as enthusiastic a player, he said he was coming off because he didn't feel too well. That was quite unusual for dad because he liked playing. Then as we're all sitting there the dressing room door opened and standing there was my absolute hero, George Best, with Mike Summerby, less of a hero of mine because he played for City. George shouted to Dad, who was taking his boots off, Hey Bill, have you got a pair of size seven and a halfs? Dad said, Yeah, these are seven and a half, use these. They're actually old, big old Timpsons football boots, but George Best took them. As they both went off, I suddenly thought, bloody hell, they're going to play for the opposition. They're both right-sided attack, right attackers, and I'm a left fullback. That means I'm going to be marking George Best and Mike Summerby for 45 minutes. Rather than running off in horror, I was excited by the whole idea. So for 45 minutes in the second half, I was marking both of them. They were both at the peak of their careers. George Best was probably about 23. This could never happen these days, but they absolutely loved playing football, so they just turned up and they wanted to play. The news did travel fast, although we didn't have social media then, and I reckon close on 10,000 people were in the ground during the course of the second half. Every time George Best got the ball, and he was mesmeric, because he could go either way, the ball seemed to be attached to his feet all the time. Close control, fast. 
The kids screamed every time he got the ball. Max Summerby, he was very quick, and I was as well. And I wasn't bothered about kicking him, but I was bothered about kicking George Best. Anyway, two football stories, enough of all of that, and back to the world of radio. Where we left episode one, I was talking about being made redundant for the first time in my life from the free newspapers job that I had at the Manchester Times. That was, as I said last time, Eddie Shaw was part of that same working team. He was the agency rep. Eddie was not universally popular in the team, but he was very good at what he did. We got on very well. So we all ended up in the same position though that day with one week's paying cash and no bloody job. And my belief is at a time like that, however dire the circumstances are, it's what you do about it, not whether it's happened or not, it has. For about an hour though, I sat in, in the sales office and I felt very sorry for myself. I think you're entitled for that. Then I thought, well, who's actually going to get you out of this position? Answer, me. One piece of good fortune, and I thought, right, I'm gonna act on that. My previous boss of mine at the Stockport Express, not the fat, ignorant one I talked about last time, but a guy called, a field sales manager called Bob Taylor, lovely man. He'd recommended me to Piccadilly back in November 73, and they'd actually had me in for an interview. We seemed to go quite well. And they'd said they'd offer me a job when the station went on air in April 74. So I phoned the sales secretary, Jane, Jane Morgan, and said, you won't remember me, but I previously came in for an interview. My circumstances have changed and I'd like to come and see Richard again. Fortunately, Jane did remember me. And after talking with Richard Bliss, another fat, balding, full bluster sort of guy, said, yes, come in next week, thank God, for an interview. And the interview seemed to go really well. Richard said, I want you to meet Philip Birch, the MD, and he took me through to his office. It's not an overstatement to say my whole life changed from this moment. Not only did Philip actually offer me the job after speaking to me about my career, but he offered me a job as a sales executive with six weeks to the station launch. Now, how exciting could that be? But apart from that, I was so impressed with Philip himself. He was so calm, authoritative in his style. I immediately felt confident as he told me his vision for how the station would be. He knew the style of the station and what Manchester would want. Fun, exciting and bold. Exactly what Manchester actually is. Anyway, I got started the job on September the 24th, 74, and six weeks before the station launched, as I said, and within a month of, I was selling my first ever contract. I did really well. My first ever contract I sold was to Fred Pye Metal Merchants. Strangely enough, he was a big mate of Dad's. Don't know whether there's a connection there, but that was my first order. Anyway, feeling very pleased with myself after that first month, I went up to Philip's office. Because when you haven't got a mortgage and you haven't got kids and all those commitments, you're brave and you're confident. Probably a bit stupid as well. He always did say, though, if the doors open, come in and have a chat. 
there were steep stairs down into Philip's office. So I stood at the top there. He looked up from his big desk and he said, hello, Tony, how can I help? I said, can I ask you a question, Philip? And he said, yes, of course. I asked the question. So how do I get to your job, Philip? How do I get to do your job, Philip? By now, being MD of a radio station seemed to be the best job to me. Philip said, in very stern form, come in, close the door, sit down. I thought, oh shit, I've overdone it. I'm going to get a bollocking. Actually, far from it. Very calmly, Philip said, first, get very good at selling radio, which I muttered something like, yes, of course, that's a given. Then, and here's the magic of the man, he said, I'm going to be on industry committees. The industry is expanding very rapidly. Your next move would to be become a sales manager or a sales director. And you might have to move for that. He said, as jobs come up, I'll help you with those applications. Now, when you think about it, how, could, how good was that? Brilliant man. And he was true to his word. One of the early jobs that came up was sales director of Radio 4th in Edinburgh, close actually to my lovely mum's birthplace. Philip helped me actually write the letter, but shock horror, they turned me down. Well, Philip said quite simply, their loss, move on. He taught me so much every day. Every day I was there, there was something new to learn. So Philip became my role model, my mentor. He was in total control very gentle in approach. But I'll tell you what, and you do need this in management, if you've got the wrong side of him, watch out. One early example, well, when I first joined in the 70s, the unions controlled everything. The minor strike was on, everything was happening. There was such, a, there was actually a recruitment meeting for one of the big unions at the station. Being full of devilment, I actually encouraged the lads in sales to go along. We all went along just to see. Anyway, the next morning, obviously, the word had got out that we'd attended the meeting from sales. It was our sales meeting time, 8.30 on a Wednesday. Richard Bliss met us and he looked ashen. He looked frightened. We got to go to Philip's office. He's very angry, he said. We all filed in stood in single file like naughty schoolboys. Philip shouted at us all. It went something like this. If any of you bastards think by joining the union you can get a better deal, we'll take your company cars off you. You won't get a bonus. And he went on for about five minutes ranting at us. Then at the end of it, he paused and he said, get out. We did. So we learned about Philip that day. <laughs> but Philip, but Piccadilly Radio was full of immensely talented people, not surprisingly, who were given the freedom to perform. We all were. That was the Birch-inspired thing. He made some daring and brilliant appointments. Colin Walters, the programme controller, had worked at BBC Radio Nottingham. 
a really tough, passionate radio man. And again, don't get the wrong side of him. Tony Ingham, Tony Ingham, exactly the right choice to be head of promotions. Breakfast show presenter, Roger Day from Pirate Radio Caroline, brilliant presenter. And he was a Manchester United supporter, by the way. Others, well, there were so many talented ones, but you have your favorites, don't you? Pete Reeves and Phil Wood gave the station a really solid sound of confidence. Everywhere you looked, sport was covered. Tom Tyrrell, Brian Clark, United and City were covered off. Phil Thompson, the chief engineer, and the finance man, Jeffrey Jones, all brilliant at their jobs. Shona, who was in charge of trafficking all the many ads we sold, assisted ably by the lovely Liz Bracken, and Diana Garner, she was then, later to marry my brother, Tim. In sales, George Bird, it's a long list, isn't it? But they were all so good, and it was all of a team. Brian Loynton, Glyn Jones, Bert Tatlock, the local sales manager, Jane Morgan, the secretary to Richard Bliss, who had the joy of trying to control him. That was something else. Now, the culture in many media organisations then, in the early 70s, was one of lots of alcohol drinking and parties. Piccadilly was no different. Every manager had a drinks cabinet in his office. We were always having parties ahead of holidays or any other reason we could think of for a party. I think it's probably best and advised not to go into too much detail about those parties, but use your imagination. One good story happened on the actual day of the launch. It was a funny story, really. Tuesday the 2nd of April 1974 was the actual launch date. But Philip Birch had said, we will not go on air on Monday the 1st, on April Fool's Day. It would be bad luck. So we didn't. The station was going live at 6am, I think it was. Everybody had to get into work to be there for the first show, Roger Day's breakfast show, with champagne breakfast. I arranged to give the research lady, Donna, an American, a lift from Hazel Grove. As I pulled up about 5.15 in my branded car, I saw Donna and she came towards me. Suddenly from nowhere, a police car pulled up and said, where are you two going? I suddenly twigged. They thought we were up to no good. And they thought Donna was a prostitute, I think. Uh, and we had a laugh with them and I said, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a mention on this first ever breakfast show this morning. Roger Day will give you a mention. They laughed with us and we laughed all the way into Manchester. Now, in terms of the impact of Piccadilly on my family, well, the person who took most interest really was Tim. Ironically, my dad had said it would be too risky to get involved in commercial radio. Ironic from somebody who'd taken a job with four children in ITV when everybody said that wouldn't work either. Anyway, that encouragement to get into commercial radio when dad said that, but Tim was the one that took most interest on a daily basis when I went back home. He asked me loads of questions. Every day he wanted to know more. One day he said, I want to work there. I said, well, what do you think you could actually do? He said, I don't know really. So I said to Tim, because he had no real educational qualifications at that time. He was deputy manager, because he's a lovely lad at the local co-op in Marple. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the jobs and you can see what you might do. I mentioned copywriting for commercial production because I knew they were recruiting there. 
He said, I could do that, I can write. So I said, okay, well, the person that's in charge of that department is a guy called Steve England. The only bit I'll help you with is that I said, I will tell Steve, you will give him a ring, but the rest is up to you. Tim got the job and he did very well. One day he came to me and he said, I know loads of wacky people. I could interview them and put them on air. I said, well, that's not me. That's Roger Finnegan, who runs the features department. I said, I'll tell you what, go to Roger, ask him if you can use one of the big Ewer recording machines as they were then, and interview those people if you think they're so interesting, and say to Roger, if you use any of those on air, pay me 25 pounds a time. Tim did brilliantly, and characters like the Mad Hatter of Stockport became famous on air. He progressed. He was a natural, Tim. He, he learned about being a newsreader. He got into presentation first of late, late night shows, then the breakfast show, then he was program controller. I'd left and gone elsewhere by then, and he was much better known at Piccadilly than I ever was. And it, actually, to tell you something else, he was a great presenter. Now that brings us to the end of this uh, episode, episode two. Much more next week when I, well, here's something for you. I leave Piccadilly, headhunted locally, and I return within a month. And then three months later, I leave for Portsmouth full time. I sail for Portsmouth. Let me tell you all about that next time, but contact me with your stories. Listen out for the contact details at the end of the programme. See you next week. Bye. Grundy Scrambles with Tony Grundy is a For The Now media production. If you would like to get in touch with Tony or have any radio stories of your own, email tony at forthenow.co.uk.